Action series of podcasts is proudly supported by Arc Maths. That's Arc with a C. Now, over the course of these nine episodes, you'll be hearing about cutting edge research and its application to the classroom. And that is exactly what Arc Maths is all about. The ArcMaths app makes use of research into retrieval, testing, spacing and interleaving to design a personalised practice programme for each of your students that stops them forgetting the things they once knew. It strengthens their recall of core math skills and knowledge and keeps students systematically practising previous topics so you can teach new ones. There's no teaching element to it, it's just designed to support your teaching through regular recapping. On top of this, there is a brilliant handwriting recognition tool that can even cope with my dodgy scribbles and you can annotate the pictures and write on the working out screen. Unsurprisingly, the app has been shortlisted for Educational App of the Year at the 2021 BET Awards. Teachers can have a go with the ArcMaths app for free if they get in contact and mention the Mr. Barton Maths podcast. It's currently available for iPads, but phone and other tablet versions will be available from September. So just drop them an email at hello at arceducation.co.uk or contact them via the website. And there's links to both of those things in the show notes. And remember, that's Arc with a C, not a K. So welcome to season two of my Research in Action mini-series where I interview researchers from Loughborough University's Centre for Mathematical Cognition about their chosen area of interest and crucially the implications for teachers in the classroom. And above all, I try my very best and often fail not to come across completely out of my depth. Episode two features the wonderful Barbara Jaworski. Now, Barbara has had a ridiculously glittering career as a maths education academic. She's an expert on constructivism and communities of inquiry, and she's researched secondary school and university maths. She's been a maths teacher, worked at the Open University, the University of Birmingham, the University of Oxford, and the University of Agda in Norway. She has also held some prestigious positions in maths education research and won loads of awards. Now, I'll tell you what, I mentioned this uh, in uh, the start of episode one, The CVs of these guests on this Research in Action series are ridiculous. And I think I'm putting Barbara right at the top of this. It is unbelievable when you hear some of the things that she's she's done. Anyway, the main focus of our conversation today was on inquiry, but not just in the sense of uh, Andrew Blair's meaning that we've discussed on this podcast in the past, but more generally. And to use a phrase of Barbara's that I absolutely love, we're going to be discussing inquiry as a sense of being. Now, just a word of warning, it takes us a little while to delve into the nitty-gritty and practical takeaways from Barbara's research because there's just so many aspects of her illustrious career that I wanted to delve into. But stick with the conversation because there is absolute gold throughout it and particularly when we move into the second half where we really start talking about the practical takeaways. Anyway, without further ado, let's get cracking and as ever, I will see you on the other side. So, Barbara, we start the podcast as we always do with your math speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? 
well, this is probably terribly boring, but I don't have a favourite number. But if you want to play the game, I'll say <laughs> it's 42, because, of course, 42 is the answer to everything in the universe. Very nice. Very nice. We've had a few quite high profile guests who don't have favourite numbers. It's it's an interest. <laughs> it's an interesting one, this, but I'll, I'll let you off on that one, Barbara. But you've got to give me an answer for this one, though. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? I think it must have been algebra, although I did also like geometry, but certainly algebra. Can you remember what age kind of algebra hooked you in? Were you pretty young or...? I can't remember much about algebra before secondary school. So I went to secondary school um, after the 11 plus, if you can <laughs> think that far back. Um, and we started algebra there and I just loved it. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's, it's a popular one is, is algebra. Yeah. yeah, something about it. Yeah, first kind of seen the deep structures of mm. mathematics and it's more than numbers and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a nice one, that. And final question, uh, what would you like to do if you weren't involved in mathematics education? Well, I've thought about that as well. And, <laughs> you know, I've been in mathematics education a very long time and never regretted it. Um, maybe horticulture. Nice, nice. Do you, do you do a bit of that at the moment, do you? Oh, only potter around, really. I don't have time for that much. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Fantastic. Well, um, as I was saying to you just before we started recording, from what I can see from what Colin sent through, you've had quite quite the career. So I wonder, and take as much time as you want on this, Barbara, just talk us through where it all started for you to where you are now. Well, <laughs> I mean, the answer to that is how long have you got? <laughs> but anyway, um, when I got my degree, which my first degree was in physics, um, my parents went off to the United States for a, a silver wedding trip. And I promised to stay at home with my sister. Um, and as a graduating student, I didn't have any money, so I thought I ought to get a job, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I managed to get a job in a secondary school teaching physics and some mathematics, wow. and it, it, it sort of took off from there. But um, one of the things I really wanted to do when I came out of university was um, travel. Um, and I particularly wanted to um, go and work overseas. And so um, after my first year of teaching in the UK, um, I got a job with the Ministry of Overseas Development to work in Kenya. Wow. And I worked in Kenya for two years. And then after that, with a short break, I worked in the Philippines for two years Jeez. and that was just fantastic I mean being a very young teacher having scope for doing you know in Kenya <laughs> I, I taught physics with chemistry um, and I didn't know any chemistry <laughs> and I taught um, English um, art and music Jeez. as well it was an African girls boarding school way out in the bush um, near, fairly near to Lake Victoria and near to, to the Uganda border. And it was just an absolutely fantastic experience. Did you have an art and music background? No. Nope. Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I did O-level music and I play the piano, but right. I mean, no, <laughs> no. Jeez, wow. <clears throat> but, oh, but you know, so because of going into teaching, 
straight off from my degree, I never actually did a PGCE. Um, right. So um, the formative years of teaching were having these opportunities overseas and they they were just incredible. You know, the scope for what they allowed me to do was just, yes. <laughs> when I look back, I think, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Any particularly memorable lessons or anything that springs to mind when you think back well, to those? One, one anecdote. Um, as I said, I was teaching physics with chemistry, and <coughs> excuse me, I didn't know any chemistry. Um, you know, I'd done O level, but that was all. And um, a girl came to me. One of our really bright students came to me and said. Um, what is the difference between an oxide and an anhydride? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I sort of knew what an oxide was, but what the hell is an anhydride? <laughs> and, um, you know, probably my answer was what teachers throughout the world do all the time. But, you know, I said, Ruth, I'm, I'm sure you can figure that out. <laughs> Just go and have a new th uh, another think about it and yes. then come back. <laughs> and then I um, went and found the nearest textbook. <laughs> that was good. That's good. Where did it go from then? So that was two years, did you say, you spent over there? Two years in Kenya, two years mm. in the Philippines. Mm. Um, and then I came back and got a job teaching in um, a secondary school in Yorkshire. Um, and I worked in a few secondary schools in Yorkshire. Then I moved to London and I worked in a school in London. Um, and is this still teaching from physics or have you gone to maths um, at this stage? I've, I've gone over to maths. And in fact, um, going over to maths, I decided that I needed to know more maths. So I did an Oak University undergraduate maths degree and that was hugely formative because mm. the way the open university taught maths was just so different from my experience of university teaching oh, really? um, you know I I am totally committed to the open university it was a fantastic experience doing maths with the open university well, what I, were some of the differences Barbara <clears throat> well it um Obviously, it was all text-based mm. in those days. Um, <clears throat> it set questions that you had to think about and explore. Mm. And, um, of course, in those days as well, uh, we had summer schools. And <clears throat> summer school introduced me to things called investigations. And this was before investigations came really into practice more generally. Um, and I just loved being involved with colleagues, with other people, collaborating in doing investigations. And my final teaching job was in a <clears throat> comprehensive school in Bedford. And I had a great department and I started to introduce investigations in the department <clears throat> and of course in Bedford we were fairly near to the Open University <clears throat> so I invited the Maths Education Centre people to come over and work with my department which was brilliant 
And from there, I ended up getting a job at the university. Nice, nice. So that was next in your, on your path, was it? How, how long did you spend at the Open University? I had five years. Mm-hmm. And during that five years, I did my PhD. Wow. Jeez. And keep keep going, Barbara. I mean, I'm in Florida. <laughs> what, what, so what was, your, what was your PhD on? Well, uh, um, well it was um, about... Um, investigational work in the learning and teaching of mathematics so you know this business of doing investigations really set me up for my Mm. life um, because I'm still doing it except that um, I've moved on to a more theoretical perspective than I had in those days Um, but when I uh, when I was interviewed for the job at the university um, I was asked, you know, what are you interested in? What what do you hope you'll be able to do here? Mm-hmm. And I remember saying that I wanted to explore the idea of investigational work as a basis for mathematics teaching. And I was rather naive about it in those days. You know, I, <laughs> I really think they laughed at my effrontery. <laughs> um, but... You know, I had a wonderful group of colleagues at the university. Have you interviewed any of the university people? No, I haven't. No, no. Um, Who should I speak to, Barbara? John Mason. Be on, be on, oh, we oh, have had John on with, with Anne, yeah. They, oh, they've came on as a double bill, yes. Oh, right. I'm a big fan of John, well, yes. I, I worked with John back in those days, and um, that was very nice. Um, now, what my job was mainly uh, in the five years that I was there was to write materials um, at university units for teachers and um, we were still working with Cockroft then it was towards Mm. the end of the 80s Um, and we had a a contract with um, I think the Department of Education or whatever it was called in those days to produce video material to back up the Cockroft report I don't know if you are familiar with Cockcroft? Oh yes, definitely yes. Uh, <laughs> but Cockcroft two four three, you know, they say that the guy who wrote it never thought that it would become mm. um, so influential and well known. But um, for, for the benefit of listeners, Barbara, who aren't aware of it, can you just summarise Cockcroft two four three? Well, what's the what's the kind of <laughs> Um, well, Cockroft 243, it's just a para- not a paragraph, it's just a small, very small mm. section because the sections are numbered. Um, itemized six elements of classroom teaching that they thought should be evident in mathematics classrooms. Mm. Um, now I'm going to catch myself out by not remembering them all. You know, one problem of getting to uh, my age is that you forget things all the time. Um, but the three things that um, we were asked to provide video material for were investigations, uh, practical work mm. and um, the use of practical apparatus yes. and uh, what was the other one um, investigations practical work and oh, here I am uh, <laughs> it's all okay. three and I can't now think it'll come to me I'll, sure, I'll sure, tell you well. uh, if I think about it again um, but my job <laughs> was to go into schools find teachers work with the teachers to a point where 
those teachers would be willing to be videoed ah. by the Open University for Open University materials. So yes. it's a fantastic job. So, you know, I would go to local authority meetings and I would ask teachers who were interested if I could come and work with them in the classroom. And, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which I learned more about teaching mathematics through the observations of those yeah. teachers during my time at the Open University than I had done in 15 years of teaching mathematics. It's this interest, and I often say this on the podcast, I was um, an advanced skills teacher for maybe five or six years, and it was the best best part of my career because I was, I was teaching in my school four days a week and then one day a week working with other teachers, and you just learn so much, don't you? Even, even it, well, particularly teachers will do something in a way that perhaps you wouldn't have done. It's just fascinating to, to, to watch and... It's yeah, it's, it's 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 the best form of professional development I find is just watching other teachers whenever possible. Yeah. So um, the third item that I couldn't remember yes. <laughs> uh, is discussion, discussion in the yes. classroom. Yes. So uh, what I was doing when I talked with these teachers, well, first of all, I would uh, introduce myself at a, a, a local authority meeting, and I'd say mm. we're looking to. Um, work with teachers who are interested in investigations, mm. practical work and discussion. So if you're interested at all, you know, um, talk to me and mm. we can arrange something. So um, talking about those aspects of the Cockroft paragraph, um, you know, I wanted to do my PhD. I was interested in the use of investigational work in learning and teaching mathematics. And so alongside the work that I was doing, I gathered data for my PhD. Yes. I worked with some wonderful teachers, um, you know, for obvious reasons, I can't tell you who they were, but, sure. um, you know, um, they're all around somewhere now <laughs> uh, yeah that's fantastic and so um how long did you stay at the open university and what happened after that part i started i worked there for five years mm. um i was on short-term contracts and um i came to the end of one of those contracts and the open university was just about to advertise a permanent contract mm. for which I could have applied but there was also a job on offer at the University of Birmingham for PGCE work uh. and this was something new for me I hadn't even done a PGCE myself yes, yes. so um, I applied for the job at Birmingham that was interviewed first and I was offered the job and I decided to take it. Now, that was a real wrench. Um, I remember sitting in John Mason's office crying because <laughs> I don't want to leave you, you. Yes, yes. But, you know, it was a, a step into something new that I could um, learn more about. Um, and I had three years in Birmingham. Um, doing PDCE and one of the problems with that was living near to Milton Keynes it was a long drive every day um, yeah of course and so after three years I applied for and got a job in PDCE at Oxford right and okay. we, mo we moved to Oxford um, 
So then I worked in, uh, at Oxford for 10 years and wow. um, I built up my work with, well, the Ox, I don't know if you've heard of the Oxford internship scheme. No, don't think but, so, no. Um, in those days, that was one of the leading um, places in the country for PGCE, um, and it, it, that was that was a really good place to work. You know, they were ahead of many other PGCE places. Um, so I learned again a huge amount um, working in Oxford, but also um, I started to supervise research students. And over the years, built up a really good group of research students. Um, and we did all sorts of things. You know, we used to have dinners at my house where everybody would bring something and nice. we would talk shop all the time. But uh, And then um, I set up two um, groups of colleagues um, not at the same time, but first one and then another, who would get together to talk about teaching. Um, so one one of the groups was called Being a Teacher, um, and the other one was the other one called um, I've forgotten that now. Sorry. It's okay. But you know, these were people who were in PGCE or something similar who really wanted to talk about what does it mean to learn and to teach mathematics. Mm. And, you know, the inspirational thing about all of this was working with people who loved mathematics, who loved working with students on mathematics, and really wanted to think about what it means to learn and to teach mathematics. So this has been, in a way, my inspiration for the whole of my career. Jeez, and what happened after? So this is, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep track of you. We're at Oxford, <laughs> Oxford for 10 years, is, is that right? I was in Oxford for 10 years, and, you know, um, PGC is hugely demanding if you do mm. it well. And I yes. don't know anybody in PGC who didn't do it well. Um, but it meant, you know, you had all your university sessions with students, yeah, but then yes. you went out to visit them in schools. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you were dealing with maybe 20 students and visiting these students in schools and then coming back to the university after a visit and writing up the visit. Yes. You know, it was just so demanding. And then finding the time for the research as mm, well. And the research was very important to me. I think I just got worn out with that, yeah. um, and I just wanted to stop doing PGCE because I didn't want to cope with those demands anymore. And unfortunately, at Oxford, there wasn't an alternative. Yeah. So, of course, I looked at, around to see what was available, and a job came up in Norway. Wow, okay. And it was the job was... Um, at the professorial level, because at Oxford I got up to being a reader, but not professor. And so the job was to become a professor in Norway and to lead the development of a PhD program. So develop courses for PhD students and supervise wow. PhD students. I mean, this was a new challenge. Yes. And, yes. you know, obviously going away to work in a new country again you know I'm, I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a 
a young teacher anymore. Um, but that, again, was a fantastic experience. And we were fortunate um, in my first year in Norway, uh, we applied for a research project with the Norwegian Research Council and we got it and it brought a lot of money. And so we had a very big project uh, involving colleagues and PhD students working with teachers in schools to develop mathematics teaching in uh, inquiry ways. So during all this time that I've just been talking about, the idea of investigational work uh, morphed into inquiry-based mm. learning and teaching in mathematics. And so we had this big project um, in Norway with eight schools from lower primary to upper secondary um, in the local area. And our aims for the project were to work in partnership with the teachers inviting the teachers to become researchers with us um, in exploring what in, uh, inquiry-based learning and teaching in mathematics might look like in their classrooms. What year are we talking here, Barbara, for this? In, or, or roughly I went, in, in, I went to Norway in 2002. Ah, okay. Uh, and what, yes. what, what, what would be some of the main differences... In, in the way that maths was taught in, in Norway, in the UK? Is it, is it possible to draw any kind of broad broad comparisons? Well, or no, if you, if you think of how we regard the Scandinavian countries, you know, um, having wonderful social systems and so yeah. on, the big difference was that uh, setting of students in schools was illegal. Wow. Um, there was no setting in schools all teaching was multiple what whatever um yeah and of course that caused issues for teachers mm. Mm. um you know you probably know what some of them would be if suddenly overnight you had well it, it wasn't suddenly overnight for them but um for for me, uh, seeing how the teachers there handled a system, how it was organised, how it was um, led, you know, from the ministry there. Um, and another of the changes was that the ministry in Norway really respected teacher educators and researchers. And, you know, when a new curriculum came in, the people... Um, asked to write that curriculum were usually people in universities so those for me were the two big differences in Norway but I mean we worked with some really good teachers at all of the levels and again you know I learned such a lot from doing that and of course one of the issues was uh, I didn't speak Norwegian you know yeah. I had to be I had to be running um the doctoral courses from the first week that I was there. So um, all of the doctoral program was run in English because, of course, the doctoral students had to be able to read academic papers in the international setting, which um, means in English. Um, and so I was absolutely fine in doing my job in the university in English um, but, of course, when we got into schools, teachers and students speak Norwegian. Of course they yes. do. Um, 
But we had a wonderful team of people uh, from the university, and many of them were familiar with the schools and they knew the teachers. So, you know, all, all of my colleagues, well, not quite all of them, because um, a colleague came from England to join us. Um, and we um, were two people who <laughs> had no Norwegian. So uh, the teachers were very generous because they mainly spoke good English as well. Um, but when we were observing in classrooms, of course, the teaching learning was in Norwegian. And one of the issues for me, um, I ought to just back up a little bit and say that um, when I did my own PhD, um, the my uh, methodology was very qualitative and um you know collecting qualitative data and analyzing qualitative data from observing in classrooms mm -hmm. um so uh, unsurprisingly uh, in this project we were collecting qualitative data um ethnographic data if that means anything um and it was in Norwegian. And of course, when you analyze ethnographic style data, you have to get into the nuances and the fine details of the language. And I, you know, my, my Norwegian is not very good anyway, but I certainly couldn't do that. So I was reliant on my Norwegian colleagues for the analysis of my data. And that was not a good, that was not a good situation. Jeez, and and if this isn't a really silly question, Barbara, what what were you trying to find out as, as part of these studies? Was it whether investigations and inquiries are more effective than something else, or no. how best to run them? What, no. what were you looking at? No, um, we came from a theoretical perspective of what it means to learn and teach by inquiry. What is inquiry? What does it look like? Um, but basically, uh, we were inquiring into what it looks like to mm. create learning situations for students in mathematics through inquiry. So we were inquiring at three levels, or we call them three layers. So if you imagine uh, a model, a diagram, um, where you have um, a central layer which is doing investigation, doing inquiry-based mathematics with students in the classroom, and then surrounding that. So if you were drawing it, you'd draw a central ellipse and then another ellipse around that. That would be teachers inquiring into the processes of working in inquiry ways with students. And then the outer layer, so it's a three-layer model, the outer layer is about doing research into the whole process of inquiry yes. practice. Um, now, um, I'm working in a big European project now, um, which is using that model. So the model now is in the literature. Um, and basically, in the middle layer, the teachers, and in Norway, we called ourselves didacticians. Teachers and didacticians work together on what it means to teach and do developmental work in classrooms. And then in the outer layer, 
the researchers who can be either teachers or didacticians actually collect data and do more rigorous analysis of that data. So, you know, I've got lots of publications from that work. Um, it was a four-year project, um, and I stayed in Norway for nearly five years, and then I came back to the UK. Jeez. Well, I've, I've lots of questions to ask you about inquiries and investigations in Go general, on. but we, we best, well, we best carry on with your career though, Barbara. I, I don't <laughs> want to leave the audience on a cliffhanger here. So you, you've come back to the UK. Well, what happened next? Well, <laughs> as I said, one of the main difficulties in Norway was analysing my data. Hmm. Otherwise, I would have stayed in Norway. I had a wonderful life there. Um, I bought a flat. Um, in fact, I bought one flat and then moved to another bigger one. And I could have continued living in Norway. But, you know, my research by this time is my life. Yes. Um, so I looked out for jobs in the UK and I knew I didn't want to come back to any old job. Certainly didn't want to go back to PGCE teaching. And then this job at Loughborough came up um, and they wanted um, to appoint a professor of mathematics in the Mathematics Education Centre to build up research in the Mathematics Education Centre. So up to that point, the Mathematics Education Centre had been really a developmental centre, doing fantastic work in lots of ways, but they wanted it. Have you heard of the REF? I don't know. I don't think so. The, well, in those days, it was called the Research Assessment Exercise. No, no. And nowadays, it's called the Research Excellence Framework. Well, it happens every six or seven years. It's been going on since way back. Um, and when it comes to the REF, every department of every university in the UK has to submit their research for assessment in, and you know, there are assessment panels in every area of the curriculum. So um, when I came to <coughs> um, the MEC at Loughborough, um, they were just about to submit to the REF in 2008. So they brought in, uh, I came in and Lara, who you're going to talk to next, came in just after me and so our publications contributed to the ref and we got a fairly decent outcome but then over the next six seven years we built up the people the researchers in the MEC um, and when we submitted to the last ref we came really high up the league tables. So the university were very pleased with us. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, now, I mean, you're talking to other of my colleagues. Um, now, um, people uh, like Lara and colleagues have really built up uh, a wonderful research team there. And they've just submitted, uh, we've just submitted to the current ref. And the current ref. <coughs> is just about to be assessed and I have the privilege of being on the National Assessment Panel for Education. <laughs> nice, nice. Jeez. 
Wow. Well, and that, that brings us up to date, does it, Barbara? That was that was well, it, absolutely it, fascinating. It, it, it brings us up to date in terms of the jobs that I had. Um, but one of the things that has been very important for me was having an external part of mathematics education internationally. Um, and, <coughs> and so, for example, I edited a journal for 10 years, the Journal of Mathematics Teacher Education. Um, I was part of um, a group of international colleagues who set up um, uh, an association in Europe. So um, it's called ERME, E-R-M-E, the European Society for Research in Mathematics Education. Um, um, I, I worked in building that up and I was president for a few years. Um, and then more recently, um, I don't know if you've heard of PME, um, the International Group for the Psychology of Mathematics Education. No. Um, I contributed to PME right from when I was doing my PhD back in the university. Um, but in 2000 and, um, 2013, um, I was elected as president of PME, so um, wow. <laughs> that I, I feel that I, um, I, I it, it was it was a bit of achievement that I really valued. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic, Barbara. The thing is, uh, on this podcast, I speak to people and I'm forever feeling inferior and I'm having one of those moments here, Barbara. I'm going to struggle to perhaps keep up with uh, keep up with you here. With, yes, but uh, you're with, a with lot younger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've also you've got, got a two-year-old. You've got lots of time. <laughs> well, the problem is I've got a two-year-old child who doesn't sleep very well, so I, oh. feel, I feel about 105 at the moment. Well, oh, I'll, 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 see if I can, I'll see if I can keep going. Um, at this stage of the podcast, I always like to ask people, Barbara, um, to pick a favourite failure. So I wonder if there's anything in your research career or professional career in general that, that didn't go according to plan, but you learned something from the experience. Oh, many, 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 many things <laughs> over and over and over and over. Um, and, you know, when these things happen, you just feel gutted. Mm. Um, but if you're a teacher, you haven't got time to feel gutted. Your next class is there and yeah. the next one and so on. Um, I mean, what I've learned over the years is the importance of inquiry-based reflection. Mm. Um, obviously, um, I didn't, I hadn't um, theorized this when I was a teacher in school myself, but I mean, certainly... <coughs> reflecting on what I was doing and why I was doing it and how I was doing it. And, you know, one learns a lot more from things that don't go well than mm. the ones you pat yourself on the back for. <coughs> but one of the things I would point to um, was when I started working on my PhD, um, my supervisor said to me, keep a diary um of what you're doing and what you're observing and what you're thinking well i was as, as i told you going out into classrooms with teachers and 
coming away and trying to keep a diary. And I, you know, what do I put in this diary? Mm. And so it would start off by being um, a description of what I'd seen. And sometimes what I'd seen, I didn't think was that good. Yes. And I kept the diary. I wrote what I thought about. It was my diary. Nobody else was looking at it. But, you know, over the period of my uh, PhD research, I would come back to that diary and look critically at what I'd written in those early days. And I would learn that the process of reflection and developing through uh, reflection and not not just leaving out, oh, that was a bad experience, I, I felt gutted, but um, what could I do, what did I do to try and improve that in whatever way? And, of course, um, the whole basis of inquiry-based education, which goes back to John Dewey and people like George Polyer, um, you know, it's inquiring into what you're doing as you're doing it. Mm. And when it doesn't work out um, the way you thought about it beforehand, that's something to learn from. So asking yourself why, what might I have done that was different? Um, what were the circumstances? Because it's not always one's own fault when things mm. don't go well. You know, schools um, impose many constraints on teachers, which might not allow them to do exactly what they would like to be doing. Um, and I think that's certainly true in English schools. Um, so, you know, the process of inquiry-based reflection, um, and this was what my PhD was about. And when I worked with teachers um, as um, in collaboration with teachers, working with teachers as partners in the Norwegian project, the idea was that the didacticians and the teachers would be working together, bringing their own knowledge and skills. So, you know, one of the teachers said to us, um, we expected that you would come and tell us how to do it. You know, you yes. are the experts. And um, at the end of that, the teachers were saying, well, we realize that, you know, we have our own knowledge and expertise as well, and we can work with you, and together we can all work through inquiry-based practice to improve learning and teaching in mathematics. And for me, that's, that's the inspiration that keeps it going. And at the moment, um, we've got a, a, a European developmental research project. It's called Platinum, Learning and Teaching in University Mathematics. And so um, here we're focusing on inquiry-based practice in university mathematics teaching. Um, and so we, it's a European project. Uh, it's based in Norway. Um, Loughborough University is one of the partners. We have eight universities in seven countries. Um, and we are developing the idea of inquiry-based practice in teaching mathematics in the university. Um, and, you know, um, when I came back to Loughborough, that was the focus. So rather than 
focusing on schools anymore. We were focusing on teaching and learning of mathematics in the university. And this project, um, it's with the Erasmus Plus program in the EU. Um, that's, that's what it is. Wow. Okay. Fascinating. Well, what we've got thousands and thousands of teachers who listen to this, uh, listen to this podcast. And one thing I really want to do with this research in action series is to, to really pull out of, of the research and your experiences, things that you found interesting, things that you found surprising, and also things that you think teachers in classrooms who are listening to this can think, right, I'm going to take that and I'm going to try, try that out. So let's dig into some of that, if that's okay, Barbara. Let, let's start with, well, what are some of the really interesting things for you as part of your research that, you, that you've come across over the years? Working with teachers, collaborating with teachers, um, and... What this has meant for me is getting me into the classroom. So I'm not a classroom teacher myself anymore, but I work with teachers who are working in classrooms. And so we can <clears throat> look at what students are doing. We can talk about how they are learning. We're, we can talk about what evidence we have that, that they are learning. Um, and we can think about developing our own practice. So if I work with a teacher, the teacher is thinking about how, <coughs> excuse me, how she or he can develop their own teaching and their students' learning. And I'm thinking about ways in which I can support teachers in working um, with their students and improving mathematics learning. So when it comes to the university, the relationships there are rather different because um, we're not working here with school teachers, we're working with colleagues. And one of the things that's been quite important in uh, working with inquiry-based ideas in university mathematics is working with mathematicians. Um, and so um, mm. it's been thinking about how we engage with teaching and learning in inquiry ways in university lectures or tutorials or uh, small group activity or whatever. <coughs> and so um, I'm losing track of your actual question, um, but but, you know, Throughout I'm, no, just, I'm interested in what you personally have found most interesting. Well, I find it interesting working with people who work with students who are learning mathematics and think about what does it mean to learn mathematics? What does it mean then if we if we if we know what we want from the learning process, how do we teach to enable that? So it's all about mm. development of learning and teaching um, and the research that we do into that development. So I call it developmental research. And it's research that not only charts or documents uh, the developmental process, but it's research that actually feeds into the developmental process. Um, and uh, one of the things that I've done since I've been teaching mathematics myself in the university is explore my own practice. <clears throat> now, that was a real challenge. Um, 
we got a bit of money from the STEM organization, and that allowed me to pay for a research assistant. And the research assistant, uh, there were four of us in the team, um, two colleagues who had a lot of experience in teaching engineering students, myself, who has a lot of experience in teaching, but not with engineering students. And we paid another colleague in the university um, to be a research assistant with us. And she came into all of my lectures. The material of the lectures had been set up in the group. Um, and I was teaching according to some very clear guidelines. And of course, you know, however good your plan is, However good the guidelines are, mm. uh, things come up, uh, things happen, students ask you questions, whatever it is. And after the lecture, I would sit down with our research assistant and we would just go through what I'd done and what issues had come up for me and what she had observed. And that was just brilliant uh, because it enabled me <laughs> to... First of all, observe myself, um, think about what it was that I wanted to achieve. And of course, I know the theory, <laughs> so I can bring a theoretical perspective onto, onto what I'm doing um, and the issues that arise and the tensions that arise. And one thing that I've been doing with colleagues, um, I have a, a very good colleague, friend in Greece, Despina Putari, um, who has worked with me over the years. Um, and we use uh, an area of theory called activity theory, where we focus on um, the issues, the tensions, the contradictions that arise in the processes of teaching and learning and analyze them according to activity theory. And what were some of the things I'm always fascinated when um, when teachers get receive feedback and and are able to reflect on on their practice based on the observations of a colleague. But what were some of the things that, that really got you thinking when you when you had these conversations with your colleague who'd been watching you teach, Barbara? Well, um, just going back to my own PhD, <clears throat> as a result of that, um, I developed. <clears throat> what I call a theoretical construct, which is called the teaching triad. Okay, nice. Being a triad, um, if you think about a triangle, um, uh, an equilateral triangle, um, there are three nodes, and one of those nodes is the management of learning, one is mathematical challenge, and one is sensitivity to students. And the idea is that in any teaching situation, we can look at those aspects of teaching and how they relate to each other. So when I come back to being a teacher myself, <laughs> then not surprisingly, I have the teaching triad in mind. So <clears throat> what does the management of learning look like? Well, of course, that depends on a lot of things in uh, the classroom situation. I mean, in the university, it's a lecture situation. There are constraints, you know, how many students, what sort of um, 
lecture room or a, a lecture theater or um, you know what are they what does the curriculum demand all of these are constraints on the management of learning so how do I create um, my learning plan for the students um, so that brings me to sensitivity for students um, sensitivity to students is about knowing your students and working with them in ways that enable their learning and so <clears throat> it has both its effective side and its cognitive side so helping the students to feel mm comfortable in the environment that they're learning in but at the same time working with them in ways that develop their cognition um, so that's not trivial not by any mm. means but then of course there's the mathematics <clears throat> and challenging students with mathematics is not just about giving them hard sums but it's about really getting them involved in and with the mathematics and this is where the inquiry comes in enabling the students to approach a mathematical concept through an inquiry approach so not just to say give me the procedure so that i can turn the handle and apply it in the examination but what does this really mean um, what does it mean uh, to do differentiation for example what are we actually doing what are we, mm. what are we trying to achieve there you know, and the whole notion of the limit, you know, students really have difficulties with the idea of a limiting process. Um, and so the challenge, um, uh, the mathematical challenge there is to find ways of enabling the students to engage with a difficult concept, but really themselves to inquire into it, to ask the questions, to explore what it means <clears throat> so that at the end of the day they develop <clears throat> a really good concept not just uh well if we differentiate this sort of fu function we you know um uh, subtract one from the power and you know whatever it's not just uh you know give me the formula or give me the procedure it's really what is it about what does it mean and being able to develop mathematical meaning that's interesting. I've got a couple of questions on that, but I'm going to just move on to so anything that surprised you in, in your research, Barbara, anything that you, you didn't see coming that, that you think is quite important that, that people know about? Well, I suppose we all do this uh, as we go from one stage of our career to the next. You know, given that we're learning all of the time, I look back and I see how naive I was um, at various stages in my career. Um, certainly when, <laughs> when I was teaching music and drama and whatever in uh, Kenya, you know, <laughs> I, I, I just um, I just look back and I'm horrified. Um, uh, but, you know, I was enthusiastic and the, the kids could see the enthusiasm and get involved. And, you know, I think I was doing inquiry based work without knowing it in those mm. days. But, you know, when I came into PGC work in the beginning, um, I'd come from my work at the Oak University, which was not PGCE. And of course, PGCE meant thinking in very different ways um, and really using a different language 
And fortunately, I worked with a wonderful colleague in Birmingham um, who used to challenge me. You know, the words that I was using that I'd picked up at the Open University were not words that she was familiar with in the process of either teaching or doing PGCE. And so, um, you know, when I used a word with students and the students didn't seem to get it, you know, she would tell me afterwards, you know, um, they don't know what you mean and I don't know what you mean. So, you know, you've got to you've got to find another way of speaking about what you're doing, you know. And so very theoretical concepts, for example, I mean, I'd just come out of my own PhD and in a PhD, you have to be theoretical. Mm. Um, you can't just walk into a PGCE setting or a school classroom setting and use that sort of language. So that that was that was an issue that I had to deal with at that stage. But, you know, when I went to Norway, um, <laughs> I had a, um, a, a, an office in the middle of a corridor and in the room opposite to me was a Norwegian colleague, uh, a very experienced uh, Norwegian colleague who'd actually written one of the curricula that we were working with. Um, and he was part of the team who... Um, put in the bid for the research project that we got um, and <laughs> I would go across and I'd say oh trivia I've just thought of something and I would go on about what it was that I'd thought about and he would say yes yes oh yes and the Norwegian way it was just very different from what I'd experienced in England. Um, and I had to get used to the ways that Norwegians work together and explore things together. And, you know, I think without meaning to, or perhaps even without realizing it, I've put my foot in it a lot of times <laughs> until I became better acquainted with the way things were done in Norway. That's interesting. That's interesting. And um, if we've, we've if we've got teachers listening here, Barbara, who who want to improve their their way of, of running inquiries with students, or want to just become better at inquiring more about their own practice, well, what what are some of the things that you've learned from your research and experience that that teachers could kind of take on board and take away with? Well, that? have you come across action research? I'm familiar with the term, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't be. A, I wouldn't be any kind of expert. I'll tell you that much. Okay. Well, it, action research, um, very briefly, is mm. about taking action. And so, if there is something in your practice that you would like to develop, mm. then you can do a piece of action research. And basically, action research is an iterative process. So to start off with, it would be planning something for the classroom and then going into the classroom and doing what you've planned. Mm. So it's plan, act in the classroom, and then while you're acting, observe what you're doing, how you're doing it, and what's happening. Very, very difficult. <laughs> yes. 
when you come out of the classroom, reflect on what's happened there and possibly write an account of it. And then think, what do I do next time? Mm -hmm. So it's then replan. So you've got the plan, act, observe and reflect, feedback. Plan, act, observe and reflect, feedback. So it's an iterative process where over a few lessons or a few weeks or how you want to set this up, you are overtly trying to develop your own teaching. Now, as I said, that bit about observing while you're doing it is very, very difficult. One way to do that is to record it and listen to the recording afterwards. But it's time consuming. Where do you find the time to do this sort of thing? <clears throat> so I would say one of the most important things is work with a colleague. Mm -hmm. Or if you have a, a friendly researcher from the university, yes. <laughs> which is a role I've played many, many, many times, get them to come and observe. Mm -hmm. Because <clears throat> reflecting on what you've done is much, much, much better if you can do it with somebody yes. else. And so I would really encourage teachers to work together, you know, if you can't find a friendly uh, university researcher who will come and work with you. Work together. Um, and, you know, it may be that you're in a school that takes PhD students. Get your, no, sorry, not PhDs, PGCE students. Mm. Get your PGCE students involved. Get them yes. to observe you and feedback. They'll learn ever such a lot from doing that. So for me, it's developing your own practice through some kind of iterative approach, um, working with a colleague or some researcher from outside, um, setting up the iterative process, the plan, act, mm -hmm. observe, reflect, feedback. <coughs> Um, and getting the other person helping you in doing that. And maybe you both do it and then you observe mm. for each other. Um, you know, maybe you persuade your head teacher or whoever to give you time to do it because if you're doing that, you're adding to the school ethos, you're making it more research-based, you're making it more of a, a practice, a learning practice. Um, I don't know if you've heard of lesson study. I've heard that's one thing I have heard of, Barbara. I've, I've lesson heard of study uses a similar practice. Yes. Um, you know, there's a lot written about these things, you know, a whole literature that you can refer to. Um, I mean, for me, the literature I refer to is research based, so you know, to get published. You have mm. to get into the theory. And I think many teachers are not so interested in the theoretical side of things. But, you know, many teachers do master's degrees. And as part of a master's, they might do a dissertation where they've done mm. this kind of work. Um, and for me, it is absolutely central to learning in practice. You know, we talk about 25 years of teaching. 
And you can ask whether that's been 25 years of doing the same thing every year or whether it's been 25 years of developing your practice um, during that time. Um, and I think teaching is much, much, much more rewarding if you're doing some kind of developmental research yourself. But of course, it demands time. And you know, you've got your family life, like you say, you've got a young child, um, you've got a partner maybe who wants time from you. You can <laughs> you know, yes. there are many, many pressures. And in terms of um teachers wanting to do this, would your advice be to pick something quite small and specific mm. that they're going to be working on? And the, the reason I ask is I often find whenever colleagues uh, kind of observe each other and then feedback, unless there's a, a real clear thing that the teacher who's being observed says, right, watch out for this. This is what I'm working on this, this particular lesson. The, there can be a bit of an issue that the feedback can be a bit, bit vague and not all that constructive. Would your experience suggest that you pick something quite specific to, to, to focus on and also inform the person who's watching you that this is what, what you want? Absolutely. Work? Don't be too ambitious. You know, just, yes. just something small like um, I want to ask more open-ended questions. So mm. you go in and you teach your lesson with the observer and the observer has the job to note down when you ask a question, what sort of question is it? Yes. <clears throat> I came a cropper in, on this because, um, you know, when I was teaching the engineering students, that was one of my aims to ask more open ended questions. And uh, my research colleague had the job of noticing um when I asked a question and, you know, uh, out of all the questions I asked, and I did ask a lot of questions and mm. involve the students in the questions, but 80% of them were closed questions. Wow. Yes. That's it. So you, you On just, the you other just hand, you know, sometimes you need a closed question. Of course. Of um, course. But that was my aim to have more open questions. Well, I managed 20%. Yes. <laughs> I think that's more than I'd manage, but that's, uh, that's good. That's good. Um, I'm also interested um, in inquiry from the other side. So you mentioned um, when you've been uh, lecturing at university, helping your students develop a more kind of an inquiry approach. It's not just procedural, not just turning the wheel, as, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Again, this, this has been a long running thing that we've discussed over the years on this podcast. So we've had Andrew Blair on, the, the creator of um, Inquiry Maths, but we've also had people who would be very much for a, a kind of direct instruction way of, mm -hmm. way, of, uh, way of approaching teaching. Again, if we've got teachers wanting to to help their students inquire a bit more. Do you have any, any thoughts for them, any advice or, or any things that they could be thinking about? Well, I suppose, um, you see, this was one of my naiveties. Um, when I first encountered investigational work, um, I really wanted to rewrite the curriculum from an investigational point of view. Um, and uh, <laughs> I quickly came to learn that, you know, whether or not that was a good idea. Um, the constraints were enormous. Mm. Um, so, you know, um, coming back to Cockcroft 243, um, one of the things, um, one of the six things was exposition. Mm, uh, yes. uh, exposition and exercises. 
um, you know, as teachers, we haven't got time to do everything through a novel approach. So the inquiry part of it is really into how we balance the ways in which we're approaching our teaching. So <clears throat> I think for a teacher, the inquiry is a way of being. I work as an inquirer, but that doesn't mean I never tell anybody anything. Sure. Um, you know, when I'm thinking about, suppose I'm teaching a new topic, then before we can explore what differentiation means, they have to know something about differentiation. Yes, yes. Um, and how am I going to do that, you know? And possibly I might give um, a talk about, you know, if you draw a graph and you're looking at two points on the graph and bringing them closer and closer together and thinking about the tangent, you know, probably I would go through some sort of exercise with drawing on the board mm. and getting the students to think about what's going on here. So it would be very much um, an exposition, but it would be an exposition with diagrams and um, interactions with the students and so on. Um, but then I might ask them something about, you know, when we've done some work on differentiation and they know lots of methods of differentiation, what does differentiation mean for you? And it's not just applying the rules that we've got. It's a lot more than that. Um, and then how do I bring that notion of the meaning into the work and if we start to talk about meaning then we start to explore what's going on here um, so i am the inquirer i am the teacher who inquires into how to teach and i use inquiry-based methods as part of my teaching but not everything has to be inquiry that's interesting. I really like that. So what does it mean for you? I think that's a really powerful question that mm. you could ask students of any age for any topic. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you think students have mastered ratio or quadratic equations. What Absolutely. And a really powerful question. I like that. Um, two questions for you about inquiry that, that I've often thought of myself as a teacher and I often hear other teachers thinking. Um, so you've, you've, you've touched upon the first one, but I'd just be interested in digging into it a little bit closer. As a teacher yourself, Barbara, when would you decide that I'm gonna use an inquiry for this versus I'm not, I'm gonna do something slightly different for this? Is it as simple as if it's a novel concept, we need exposition first before inquiry or no. would there be other factors sometimes no. you'd consider? No. Um... I mean, there isn't a rule. There isn't a rule for it. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about what is the mathematics that I want to teach? Um, what do they know already as a basis for this? How can I build on what they know already? So, um, you know, if I was, can I stick with differentiation? Yeah, um, yeah it's a good one. If I'm just about to start with a sixth form uh, year, oh, year 12, <laughs> a year 12 class on differentiation, well, what do they know already? Well, 
you know, if I'm introducing differentiation, I want to use graphs. Mm. So what do they know about graphs? What do they know about functions? So I might choose to do some work on graphs and functions, but try to do it from a different perspective from what they've used before. So trying to open up the idea of what a function means. So, you know, if they think about a graph, they might think of y equals x squared plus 2x plus 1, something like that. y equals something yeah. in x. <laughs> and that's the function. So, you know, I might say, well, uh, what I want you to do before we start today, we're going to, we're going to do some work on functions. Um, I want everybody to write down a function. And then I go around the class, putting them up on the board. Um, and once we've got them on the board, people don't own them anymore. Yes. So I can pick out one here. Nobody remembers whose it was. And I can say, well, sorry, but that's not a function. Right. And I can say why it's not a function. And in saying why it's not a function, I'm doing exposition. Mm. But what I'm trying to do is um, after we've looked at a few examples, you know, I can pick out one and say, well, you know, anybody know what kind of function that is? Nobody answers. And I'll say, well, I think that's a linear function. And then I might pick out a quadratic. By the time they've seen what I said here, they might say it's a quadratic because they might know the name yeah. quadratic. So we then start getting different answers. And if I don't get good answers, then I can say, well, actually, it's this or actually it's that. Now, what's the difference between that and this? So, OK, that's linear. That's quadratic. Um, what's the difference? And then somebody might say, they look different on a graph. Oh, wonderful. So um, here we've got a linear function. Tell me what its graph looks like. And, you know, I have to deal with what I get from that. So sure. <laughs> people might say, it's a horizontal line. I'll say, it isn't actually, but you're not far wrong. Can anybody say what sort of line it is? And then gradually mm. we work towards. And how do you get this line? So I would do at least one lesson potentially on thinking about different sorts of functions and relating function and graph, bringing out properties of functions, getting them to prompt me, because they've done a lot of work on functions up to that point in there in their yes. career they've done gcse whatever um and so it's building on what they've got maybe looking at it in slightly different ways and then pulling that together to say right we're moving on to something that's at another level of difficulty so i'm going to introduce it to you and then we'll think about what it means yeah that is it's interesting the um well, what that we're recording, I mix up my days. We're recording this on a Monday, aren't we? On Friday last week, I had Anne Watson and Chris Bolton both on the show at the same time. Now, Anne, you'll be familiar with with, with Anne's work, but Chris Bolton is very much uh, uh, an advocate of, of explicit instruction, but also Engelman. He really likes Engelman's faultless communication and the idea of this is this, and now if I change this, this is now not this, and and really helping kind of students 
but a bit of variation theory, if anything, but but in a very kind of teacher-led way and so on. Uh, what, what re- the reason I bring this up, Barbara, is what really interests me is I think there's, there's, there's a big kind of debate, particularly you see this on Twitter amongst teachers between inquiry one side, explicit instruction the other, and, you know, if you believe in one, you don't believe in the other, and, and so on and so forth. What interests me is what you've described there. You could imagine it being almost labeled as an inquiry because you're, you're drawing out things from the students. The students mm-hmm. are coming up with the examples themselves. But it also, you could imagine somebody like Chris reframing that as, no, actually, this is this is pure explicit instruction, but I'm just using a certain way of doing it. Do you, do you, do you see what I mean here, Barbara? That often these labels we attach to things, they're, they're, they're not all that useful. I don't know if that makes sense at all. Well, um, I talk about inquiry as a way of being. I like that. And, yeah. you know, I could maybe look at Chris and see an inquirer behind yeah. what he does. I mean... You know, when I went to Norway, <laughs> I introduced the notion of inquiry, and Norwegians are very, very good at English, so it wasn't a strange word for them. But one of the things they tried to do was translate it into Norwegian, and mm. we discovered that they didn't have a single word that translated inquiry. That's interesting. And so we then had to use phrases. Yes. To describe inquiry. And, you know, I, one, of the, one of the important things, um, the notion of meaning in mathematics for me is absolutely central. What does it mean? Not mm. just how do we do it. Of course, we've got to do it, but yes. not only do it. What does it mean? Um, and there are very different ways of looking at meaning. And for me, respecting in this classroom, respecting students' meanings, you know, and encouraging them to offer their meanings is an important part of being a teacher and I think it's part of being an inquirer or inquiry as a way of being because it's being open to all sorts of things that people offer you or present you with and sometimes they floor you. Um, (laughs) I don't have a good example uh, just off the cuff but you know um, listen to the students for heaven's sake because by listening to them and working with what they say, you know, uh, there's inquiry, uh, inquiring into what the students mean, what they understand by what they, how they express something. Um, have you met Claire Lee? No, I haven't, no. At the Open Uni- she works at the Open University. <clears throat> She's one of my former PhD students, but she did a very, very nice action research study in her own classroom. She was a classroom teacher at the time. Um, And what she tried to do was to get her students talking mathematics. Yes. Um, And so um, she described to me something that she did with her students, which was um, they were working on squares and square roots. And she asked the class, what is a square root? And she got all sorts of different answers. And as they gave her an answer, she would ask them a question back. Um, And eventually, one student gave her something that she found an acceptable description of what a square root is. So she got the whole class chanting it. Right. 
And then she said, now write it down. Hmm. And so she pulled out that definition from the class. And it was just lovely. It's interesting. I've, I often like to she's, do this. She's, on... she's got a book on language in mathematics, so it's, you could recommend it. Oh, she's she's on my list here. I've, in fact, the, the notes I'm making here, Barbara, from yours are quite extensive here. I have lots of things I need to need to look up. Um, I'm going to. I've got one more question on inquiry I need to ask. But I often like to play devil's advocate in in these podcasts wherever possible, mm. and um, particularly whenever whenever um, I'm talking to somebody who's an advocate of explicit instruction. It's quite it's quite interesting to to pick out. But what happens if this happens? And likewise, when yeah. we're talking inquiries. So, if I was just to play devil's advocate for a second. In that lesson that you've just described there with the square roots pulling out the definition, um, what would be the argument against, and it's a bit of a loaded question this, but I'd be interested in your response, Barbara. What, what's the argument against the teacher just saying, this is the definition of a square root, saving all the time in the kind of going around the class and so on, and then using that time to do some practice, to build up some, some more investigative work and so on. What, what do you see as the argument of kind of almost cutting out the, if you want the inquiry bit of it, pulling out from the students and just going straight to a definition that's, um, yeah. Well, well yeah, I'll end my question. I, I, I don't have anything against it, but mm. um, you said that they would introduce the definition, they would give some... Um, exercise work, textbook work, um, and then they would work towards something more investigative. Yeah. Now, um, I could quite well introduce, in fact, I've done it this way, introduce differentiation my way. I, I yes. always try to interact, but... Um, yeah, of course, of course. Um, show them how to differentiate polynomials, talk about how you introduce trigonometric functions, da 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 Yes. But then actually set some tasks that require them to explore. Mm. So uh, the investigational work would come after the exposition and practice. Because, you see, we're back to Cockcroft 243 now. Yeah. So Cockcroft 243 gives six elements of um, what they expect to see in classroom teaching. Um, exposition and practice are two of those. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm not saying everything has to be done with no, inquiry no. or even inquiry has to come first. Yes. Being an inquirer, I could take Cockroft 243 and use all of those six elements in my lessons in different yes. orders yes yeah it's it's, fa it's fascinating it's uh, again it goes back to what we were discussing before you you could imagine to again go back to that i think the square root one's a really interesting one you could imagine doing it the way you did that was described there by by claire where get getting the ideas from the students and asking the questions back and working the way towards an understanding i think a really bad way to do it would be just to, a, a teacher to simply say this is a square root and then move on but you could also imagine a way where the teacher says this is a square root now if i change that this is not a square root if i change this now it is a square root and then saying to the students 
now write down to use your point from before what does a square root mean to you and mm -hmm. there are different ways of doing it and it's again these we offer it's a very it's a cliche to say the labels are unhelpful but I, I'm hearing elements of what you when you describe what it means inquiry is a way of being I, I can see that in lots of different styles of teaching that perhaps I wouldn't previously label as inquiry if that mm. makes sense yeah it's interesting the other thing I was going to ask you uh, Barbara and this is a very practical question is that one thing I've found particularly difficult when doing inquiries or just more open-ended things in a school-based setting um, is assessing students' understanding. Oh, and right, I can yes. imagine this is only more <laughs> difficult in a university setting because it's all too easy to put 10 practice questions up on the board, the students have a go at them, you put the answers up and you, you collect in their scores. But when you've got a more open-ended okay, question... Okay, I've got... I've got, I've got... Difficult. <laughs> go for it. How I've got do a response. Do <laughs> I'm just preparing a PowerPoint because I have to give a talk uh, to some German colleagues on Wednesday afternoon. Um, and I'm talking about the Platinum Project. Um, so um, in the Platinum Project, one of the things that we talk about um, is developing communities of inquiry. So a community of inquiry can be two people working together, like mm. I've described, or it can be a large number of colleagues working together. <clears throat> and <clears throat> one of the things that um, we're writing about from our group at Loughborough, um, and our group at Loughborough has included Paula, who I think you've talked to. Yeah, I just spoke to And her, yeah. Stephanie, I don't know if you're talking to Stephanie. Um, but anyway, um, for several years, Paula led a group of uh, mathematicians, people teaching mathematics, mathematicians and mathematics educators. Um, and the purpose of the group was to talk about how we can develop teaching, how, how we can improve, um, how we can teach our students in better ways than we do currently. <clears throat> and one of the things that came up was the idea of inquiry-based tasks. So, you know, how could I produce a task that is inquiry based? Thinking about that a lot. And then, and what do I do when it comes to the exam? Yeah. So, can we have inquiry based exam questions? And mm. of course, we all know that that's really difficult for all sorts sure. of reasons. So, what they did was to start thinking about a typical, um, traditional question, and then is there something that we can do to make it more inquiry-based? Uh, and so um, for my talk on Wednesday, um, I've taken an example from one of Paula's colleagues in the inquiry group, where he had taken a very traditional question on differential equations. Uh, <coughs> And it had, I think, either four or five parts to it. And the first three or four parts were very traditional in style. But then the fourth part or the fifth part, um, instead of being traditional, <coughs> I can't remember the detail, but it was if I change the right hand side of this equation, what difference would that make to how you solve the equation? Mm -hmm. and they were asked to write down two sentences. Wow. 
And so, you know, you might think, well, that's just a tiny thing. Well, of course it's a tiny thing, but big things come from tiny things. So, you know, just doing that. And then, of course, um, this teacher gets the exam back and has to mark the questions. What did the students do? Now, I have no idea what happened, but, you know, I could imagine that he was a he he learned a huge amount from what the students did or didn't do. You know, some of them would just ignore it, but some of them would write something. And, you know, I was saying we should listen to the students. Well, we should read what they write as well. And we learn an enormous amount from that. So I do know that assessment is one of the greatest barriers to um, inquiry approaches. But we've got to crack it somehow. We've got to, uh, and and we do it by just exploring in a very small way to start with. Yeah, and it goes back to what you said before about um, when we're talking about colleagues trying the action research a- approach, that you start small. If you try and launch into a big, big inquiry and trying to do all your assessment that way, it's, yeah. it's going to be a disaster. But yeah. just, I really like that idea of just putting in that, <laughs> that little question and perhaps in a, in a a normal summative assessment, but putting in that little question there is a nice way. That's great, Barbara. Well, as we edge towards the end of this conversation, uh, is there anything extra you wanted to say about your research that we haven't had a chance to cover? I could say lots and lots and lots, but, um, you know. <laughs> Leave people wanting more, Barbara. I, li- I like it. It, uh, sounds, it sounds as if you might be a good person to work with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, well, if it's okay with you, i just ask you a couple of reflection, reflection questions and I'll hand over to you for your big three, uh, Barbara, if that's okay. So, oh, big uh, three, sorry? Oh, uh, any... Um, any um, things that you'd like to recommend teachers check out i think you sent me you've sent me some through on email so we'll, um, um, i we'll... did and one of the things when um we were talking that i was going to say um in when i was in oxford i had a research project called the teacher inquiry project um when we uh, claire lee and i uh invited um a group of mentors in our pgc program to work with us and what they had to do was come up with some question that they wanted to explore in their own practice and we supported them and worked with them on that and as a result of that I wrote a paper for a journal um, and I'll send you the reference for that because in that paper I used an example of one of the teachers and the stages that she went through in ah, great. thinking about developing her practice oh we'll add that to the show notes that'd be that'd be great barbara that'd be fantastic <laughs> um so so let me then ask you then just just to bring things to an end um is there any is, is there anything that springs to mind if i ask you um is there an example of something important you've changed your mind about over the years well i've, I've already told you that i thought i could write a curriculum based on <laughs> I mean, that was probably a very silly idea, but, you know, it wasn't at the time. It was serious. Um, um, What have I changed my mind about? Um, It isn't so much I've changed my mind. I've developed Mm. what I think about things. So I might not, when I was doing this project in Oxford, I might not have talked about... um, 
building an inquiry approach around um, exposition and practice. <clears throat> so I've come to, I've come to realize the multiplicity of ways of developing teaching. And it's never to say, don't do that. Yes. It's, it's all about exploring, inquiring, but exploring the way we teach, inquiring into the way we teach. It's the second layer of the model. Um, and for me, inquiry-based teaching is that second layer. And the middle layer of doing inquiry in mathematics may come later mm. when you become more familiar with the idea of inquiring into your practice then you can think about inquiry in mathematics because some teachers are not confident enough with their mathematics to open it up to any questions about sure. the mathematics um, so you know if if a teacher is not confident with math with the maths um, then one can still have an inquiring approach to teaching and learning, but maybe not doing it through mathematical inquiry in quite the same way. I think I've come to realize that. That's interesting. And final question for, from me, Barbara. Um, what areas do you think are most overlooked in mathematical education research? <laughs> um, oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, I suppose, well, it, it, I suppose it's assessment. Um, you know, there's no point in using an inquiry approach and only setting exposition and practice questions. Mm -hmm. You've got to find some way of enabling students to show their meanings through what they write in exam questions. And, you know, the field is 2% maybe on that. It needs a, a lot great. more work. Yeah, it's, it's a great answer. Because as you said before, I think you used the word barrier. I think that is a, a big barrier for, for, for classroom teachers wanting yeah. to get involved. They, yeah, they especially when somebody them. else is setting the questions. Yeah, exactly, you know, at least exactly. in the university, you set your own questions. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that would be great to conquer that one. That's fantastic. Well, um, you sent me on email three, uh, I think, website links that you would direct. Uh, you'd you'd recommend our listeners check out. Do you want to just describe those, uh, Barbara? And I'll put uh, well, okay. On one of notes. one of them is the Platinum website, and that's really for people exploring mathematics, learning, and teaching at university level. Um, the other the other two are Australian websites, which I thought people here might not. Uh, be so readily familiar with. Um, the FYI in maths is first year in maths in the university, and it's about exploring how we teach mathematics in the first year of university mathematics courses. And of course, there's the whole transition debate mm -hmm. there, which we haven't touched on that, but that's a, a huge thing in, in and of itself. And then the other one, again from Australia, um, 
I was uh, invited to speak at a conference in Australia some years ago, um, and they invited me to go for a month and work nice. with them. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> and um, the scholars that I worked with there, I didn't know them before I went, but they're now very, very good friends. So I was invited. I don't know if you can see this. Yeah, I can. Yeah. So I was invited to write the foreword for this book, which comes from a research project called the Maths Inside Project. And what this project involved was partnerships with uh, industry, um, commerce, other, other groups who use mathematics to devise tasks that fit with the school curriculum um, so, for example, um, one of the topics they deal with is bees with backpacks. <laughs> right. And so this was um, a biodiversity project right. um, where they were looking into the habitats of bees and the reducing habitats of bees. And somehow they had managed to put a little... Um, what to call it, a little device on the back of a bee, wow. which monitored what the bee did. Um, and so as a result of collaboration with the people who were doing the work with bees, they devised um, lesson units for the students in mathematics. Yes. And so first of all, you know, some students in school might never get turned on by maths, but they do get turned on by bees and backpacks. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, they had people from industry or wherever making videos, and they would show these videos in the classroom so they'd get the students involved in whatever it was, and then they would devise a set of mathematics problems related to that. And so that's what the project is about. So wow. making school maths engaging, the maths inside project. So, you know, you could put this on your book list. Um, and I wrote the foreword to it. Nice. Um, but the, the third website is the website for the maths inside project. And it's got all these mathematical videos and tasks and that's brilliant. Well, a brilliant choice of three there and, and three that I'm not aware of myself. So again, that'll be some fresh stuff for listeners there. That's great, Barbara. Shall I send well, you we... a reference for the book? Yeah, definitely. I'll add that to the list as well. That'll okay. be great. Um, well, we've come to the end, Barbara, but I, I could have spoke to you all day there. I feel we've got <laughs> loads of things, loads of other things that we could dig into. So maybe for another time, okay. but um, that was absolutely fascinating conversation. Well, thank, thank you, you for so giving much. me the opportunity. <laughs> So there you have it. There was my conversation with the wonderful Barbara Jaworski. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. 
flipping heck, what a career Barbara has had. Um, I always feel out of my depth when I'm speaking to, to people on this podcast, but these research and action episodes, I'll tell you what, it's a test for my ego, I'll tell you that much. I'm thinking of wheeling out my cycling proficiency uh, qualification and my 10 meter swimming badge, just so I can try and keep up with, uh, with some of these CVs. But Barbara was absolutely fantastic uh, to chat to. Now, um, just a few things I wanted to, to reflect on uh, in these takeaways, if that's okay. Um, the first, talking of reflecting, is I really like this kind of four-stage process of plan, act, observe, reflect. Um, I've mentioned this over the years in the podcast, and I'm a big fan of um, structures for things. Um, my last book, Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain, I like this idea where you've got kind of a process to follow. For simple people like me, it just kind of keeps me on track. And I like this, plan, act, observe, reflect plan out what I'm going to do, whether it's a lesson, a certain aspect within a lesson, something that I'm aiming to change, plan it out uh, in as much detail as possible. I always like uh, to refer back here to to John Mason when John and Anne uh, Watson were on the podcast many years ago now, where John spoke about when he's planning things out, whether it's lessons or whatever it may be, he likes to close his eyes and visualize exactly what what he's gonna be doing and what the kids are gonna be doing. Because it's all too easy to say, right, I'm gonna ask a question at this point, or the kids are gonna be working on a task, or I'm gonna be doing a worked example. But what does that actually look like? And I really like John's idea there. Close your eyes and just visualize what you're gonna be doing, what it's gonna sound like, what the kids are gonna be doing, and so on. So plan, and then act. So carry out whatever what it, whatever it is you're doing and then observe. Now that can be a colleague observing you. It can be um, you being videoed. And again, I don't know if you've ever, ever seen, watched yourself being uh, teaching, having videoed it. <sighs> again, talk about damaging for the ego. Flipping egg. I thought I was a bit of a ropey teacher until I watched myself back using one of those um, Iris Connect things and stuff. Oh God, I thought somebody had set me up. I thought they'd, they'd put an a acting double in or something who, uh, who'd completely lost his ability to teach. It was terrible. But you learn so much. You learn so much from watching others, but you certainly, you certainly learn from watching yourself as well. And then reflect. What is it that, that you achieved from that? What can you do better? And so on and so forth. So I really like that. Plan, act, observe, reflect. I also like Barbara's emphasis on start small. This again is something that, that comes up time and time again in these the, the, this podcast over the years and just, just in general when speaking to teachers. Um, whenever you want to instigate change in your own practice or, or within colleagues or within a department and so on, it's so tempting just to try and change everything at once, particularly if you've been on some training course or you've read a book or you've seen an idea on Twitter. You're excited to try it out and you want to make that change because you're pretty sure it's going to make a positive difference. But if that change is too big, then it's too much for you to take in, it's too much for your kids to take in, it's too much for your colleagues and so on. And you get this classic issue with a, with a science experiment analogy that I always like to go back to. And that is if you change a load of variables and the outcome changes, you've no idea why. You don't know what, what that critical variable that, that made the difference was. Whereas if you isolate that change, just change one thing or at most two things and then observe the, the, the effect that it has, you're much more likely to see and pin down where that where where that significant difference is, is being made. So start small. I, it's one of those messages I, I can't hear enough. And um, then we have the kind of big bigger picture here. This this sense of inquiry is a way of being. And um, this was when when Colin Foster sent through the the profiles of, of the guests for the for this season two of Research in Action, and I saw uh, Barbara's keen interest in inquiry. And um, I was both excited and nervous. Um, 
I, I, you know that I make a thing on this podcast to, to, to speak to, to people who think differently to me, so, and I always learn the most when, when it's, whenever it's different experiences like that. But inquiry is one of those loaded terms these days, along with the kind of polar opposite, I guess, you know, explicit or direct instruction, that it can, it can cause divisions. And you particularly see this play out on social media. And again, it's a cliche to, to, to start talking about that. But I was, I was slightly concerned that this conversation would go down, not a confrontational way, because it very rarely gets like that on this, on this podcast, but it would be, you know, Barbara saying what she thought and me not being able to get my head around it. So me saying what I thought and I was not getting anywhere. But it wasn't that at all. I, I, re I really like this notion of inquiry as a way of being, just as a way of kind of thinking about things, a way of approaching not just how you teach students or how you help students learn, but how you think about your own teaching as well. It's, it's, it's a philosophy and it's a philosophy I can really get behind. And it really got me thinking this conversation with Barbara that some of the things that I would do regularly in the classroom, particularly things like the use of examples and non-examples, where I would use principles from, from Engelman that I've, I've learned from Chris Bolton and, and, other, and, and, and other colleagues who know far more about these things than me, where I would present and it lets take a classic example, let's say I wanted to help my students understand the concept of a prism. I would show my students an example of a prism and then change one thing. So it may be, let's say that we start, for example, with a, a cuboid and then let's change one thing. So instead of having, you know, your kind of square face at the bottom and the top, let's change that cuboid into a um, square based pyramid. So let's change it so we've got a pointy end and then show the students that we've now gone from an, ex from an example to a non-example. And then can we tweak that again? Can we change that pyramid in a way? So now we're back to fitting the, the definition of a, of a prism. And this use of examples and non-examples, for me, that fits very much into a direct or explicit instruction framework. But it could also very easy fit into, again, from my limited understanding, an, an inquiry framework as well. It may be delivered slightly differently, but the, the essence of it, the idea behind it, the use of variation, would, would all be there, would all be present. The core principles would be present. It's just wrapped up in slightly different packaging. And again, it's, 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 a, it's a real cliche, and I'm, I'm annoyed at myself for saying this, but it, it really is a bit of a false dichotomy when we start to think about explicit instruction versus inquiry and so on. I think two things remain the same. One is that every teacher always wants the same thing, and that's for their students to, to understand and love mathematics. But also, when you dig even a bit deeper, a lot of the a lot of the, the deep structures are the same. A lot of a lot of the principles of, of of trying to direct students' attention to notice things, to help support them, to to come to this this understanding, this realization, to build up this this, this fluency, to build up their confidence, and so on. It's they, these are core principles that that. that that span across all good teaching and it's the, these labels are often unhelpful and it's only whenever I speak to people like Barbara who you know on paper would think quite differently to me and quite th think quite differently to, to, to many of my guests that have been on this show it's only whenever we have these longer form conversations that you realize that actually we've probably got more more in common than we we have different so I'm now kind of reflecting on on some of the practices that I do whether it's intelligent practice whether it's silent teacher whether it's examples non-examples whether it's SSDD problems and I'm thinking many of those may well fit into an inquiry framework so perhaps I need to rebrand myself perhaps I am an, an inquiry teacher after all who knows um, and the final thing I wanted to reflect on from this conversation is I absolutely love this question that Barbara asked what does it mean to you 
What a great question. So you've taught your kids factorizing quadratics or you've taught your kids adding fractions or whatever it is. And the question you ask them is, is what does it mean to you? What, what, does, what does factorizing a quadratic mean to you? What, what does a fraction mean to you? What a great question to, to really probe into the depths of their understanding. And I'll tell you what, and this is a bit of a, a spoiler alert for something that's coming later on in the series. I'm going to be having a conversation in a few episodes time. I've already had it, of course, um, about comparative judgment. And comparative judgment, we've only ever spoke about on this podcast um, as a way of assessing writing, extended writing with, with Daisy Christodoulou. But what we're going to talk about later on in the series is using comparative judgment to assess mathematical understanding. And to make it work, you need the right question. And I think a question like, what does it mean to you, is a perfect, perfect question to use in a comparative judgment framework. So you've taught your kids something, it's the end of end of unit or whatever it is, and the, the task you set them is, what does this mean to you? The students can be as creative as they like, uh, address it however they want, using different representations, diagrams, examples, and so on and so forth. And then the big question is how on earth do you assess it? But I think comparative judgment might just be the answer. So quite a nice way to tie together uh, the conversation with Barbara with a conversation that's coming up in a few episodes time. Look at that. What a hook, hey? What a hook to, to keep you listening. Anyway, uh, all that remains for me to do is to thank Barbara for being a fantastic guest, uh, to thank Colin Foster for helping me put together this series. I'm having an absolute ball doing these. Uh, to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And a massive thank you, of course, to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning in and to keep giving me a reason to do this. You take care. Bye for now. <laughs>